Start building the home of your future today. Smart Home. Father, we thank you that we're here at this time, in this place, to hear the scripture read, taught, applied, a place where we can think about these things and apply them to our hearts. And we realize that in in the church, in the body of Christ, that you wonderfully blend together different people from different backgrounds, different sets of circumstances. And all of that is for our mutual benefit that we might grow and learn from each other about you and bring you glory because of it. Help us, Lord, to understand this issue that we deal with today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're doing a series called Smart Home, as you probably know, and it's building your home of the future by looking at God's blueprint in the scriptures in the Bible. When people think about their home, their dream home, they usually think about a house, a a physical place. And if you were to ask a young couple, what's your dream home? If you could have any home, they would probably describe a two or three bedroom or four bedroom, depending on how big their family is, home, with a two car garage or a three car garage or a 35 car garage, depending on what's going on there. Uh, Maybe a man cave or a she shed or a big yard for the kids. There's some idea of what the dream house would look like. But lately, over the last few years, I've discovered there's a new movement in our country toward a much smaller home called a tiny home. I don't know if you've ever seen those shows on TVs. I'm fascinated by these things, by the way. I mean, these are people who are deliberately downsizing their square footage to live in homes that are like a hundred square feet. Or 400 square feet, that's like the biggest one, you know, that's like the massive one. It's the size of a room, basically. It's called the tiny house. And these are people who are rejecting the idea that bigger is better. They would rather spend less and have more time and freedom to go places and do things with their family. I would say tiny families, because that's about all that can fit in it. But today I'd like to consider the tiny home in terms of uh, the single person, uh, the minimalist home. I want to speak about not a trend, but a reality, and that is the reality of singleness in our culture. According to the Washington Post, there are 109 million unmarried Americans over 18. 109 million singles in our country. According to the article, never before in U.S. history have so many adults been unmarried. They said 47% of all households are this way, 47%. According to the Wall Street Journal, there are now more single adult households than two-parent households. Now, with this reality, and it is a reality, comes pressure. And the pressure is from peers and from parents and from friends and from society and also from the church. The pressure is on those single adults. It's almost like, what's wrong with you? How come you're not married? Or how come you're not married yet? Is it bad breath? Is it bad habits? You skeletons in your closet. Nobody wants to hang out with you. It's, it's as if, if you're single, you're less than somebody who is married. 
which creates the kind of pressure that makes a single person think, yeah, what is wrong with me? How come I'm not married? Should I be married? Now, some people are content to be single. Some people are obviously not content to be single. In fact, they may even be angry. They may even be bitter. I heard about an elderly woman who died. She never married in her lifetime. And uh, she made a special request that at her funeral, she would have no male pallbearers to carry her casket. Those were her instructions. They were written down, handwritten instructions. She said, they wouldn't take me out while I was alive. I don't want them to take me out when I'm dead. So there. What I'd like us to do is consider singleness in the light of Scripture, and by doing so, to sort of clear the air. In clear the air, I hope that you'll end up leaving, in the very least, seeing that singleness is okay, that it's normal. And since all of us live for a time as singles, it must be normal. I made a discovery as well that happily married people were at one time happily single people. And that if you're not happy as a single person, you're not going to be so happy as a married person. That marriage itself isn't what changes and makes you a happy person. You may be fulfilled to a certain degree, but it won't change everything. One girl named Sue Kalinske, one woman, said this, I'm 33 years old and I'm single. Don't you think it's a generalization that you should be married by 33 years old? That's like looking at somebody who's 70 and saying, Hey, when are you going to break your hip? All your friends are breaking their hips. What are you waiting for? I thought that was just classic. When we look at the scripture, we discover there's lots of biblical heroes that were single people while being used by God. A lot of them. We'll look at a couple in a moment. Author Fred Hartley said, Jesus was never married and he was normal. Paul was not married and he was normal. John the Baptist was single and he was normal. History is full of normal men and women who were never married. We need to understand that one is a whole number. I like that. One is a whole number. So we're going to look at three categories today in these two texts of Scripture. The single life, the celibate life, and the sensible life. And what we're going to discover is the single life can be good. The celibate life needs a gift. And the sensible life is or should be your goal. Let's begin with the single life. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer 
and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You need a little background here. The Corinthian Christians had written Paul some questions that they had. Questions that um, were about marriage, about divorce, about celibacy. Uh, The reason they wrote him these questions is because of the culture that they found themselves in. Do you know anything about Corinth, ancient Corinth? It was a pretty loose, morally loose, and debauched, corrupt society. Um, They were morally tolerant of so many different kinds of behavior. For example, there was rampant adultery. Fornication was normal, that is, sex before marriage. Homosexuality was becoming normal. Polygamy, having many husbands or wives, and concubinage. That is, you're married to a wife, but you have mistresses on the side. Many of them would see wives as they're the people who cook your food and watch the kids and do the normal stuff around the house. But after all, I'm a man, so I have to have my flings. And so that was sort of normal behavior, to have mistresses or concubines. That was going on in Corinth, in spades. Along with that, I don't know if you know this or not, but in ancient Greco-Roman times, and especially in Corinth, there was a growing woman's liberation movement. Solomon is right. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, One Roman poet named Juvenal said things were so loose morally that he wrote of women who rejected their own sex, wore helmets, that is, wore helmets, delighted in feats of strength, and with exposed breasts, hunted pigs for sport. Now, I know you can't unsee that, right? But I just wanted you to know what was going on back then in Corinth. Not only that, but the same poet, Juvenal, says that women wore out their bridal veils because they had so many marriages. So marriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, just kept doing that. That was common. So you're living in Corinth and you get saved in that culture. Well, you got a lot of questions. And one of the big questions is, I'm a Christian now married to a non-believer who's not converted. What do I do? Do I dump him? Do I divorce him? Do I have intimate sexual relations in that marriage? Uh, Do I stay celibate? Do I never get married? There was all this chaos that brought a lot of questions. So Paul begins to answer them. And he says in verse 1, it is good. You may want to underline that word if you're so disposed to doing that. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now let me unravel that. To touch a woman was a, a Greek way of saying sexual intercourse. It meant to touch sexually. 
If you were to look back, for instance, at Genesis, when Abraham meets the king of Egypt named Abimelech, and Abimelech sees Sarah, his wife, but Abraham says, well, she's my sister. Remember that story? Well, he thinks, well, if she's your sister, then I want her to be in my harem. So he takes Sarah to his harem. And it says that God prevented Abimelech from touching Sarah, meaning having sexual relations with her. That's how the word was used. Also in the book of Ruth, Boaz told his young men who were keeping the fields and gleaning not to touch Ruth, not to make any kind of sexual advance toward her. So it's used in Genesis, Ruth, and Proverbs uh, in a way that means to touch somebody sexually. Now in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking and referring to singles, people who are single. He says, it's good not to touch a woman. Now I'm going to make a guess. I'm, I'm guessing, just from reading this chapter through in the context, I'm guessing that there were some Jewish Christians who were pressuring Gentile singles to hurry up and get married. So Paul begins by saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It is good, in other words, for Christian singles not to have sexual intercourse. That's good. But he could simply be referring to being single as good. In fact, some translations render it this way. Here's one from the 20th century New Testament that renders verse 1 this way. It would be well for a man to remain single. That's what Paul, it seems to be saying. Basically, it's okay. It's good. If you add to that verse 8, I think you get the picture. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows. Now, I think you can see that if you're unmarried, you're single. And if you're a widow, you're single. So he's speaking to single people in Corinth saying, It's good for them if they remain even as I am. Paul was single. And he's saying, It's good. So, Paul is saying, It's good It's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. He uses the word kalos. It's a good status to have to be a single person. So if you're single, you're not weird. You're not inferior. You're not a second-class Christian citizen because you're 33 and unmarried or whatever age. It's good. So singleness, as long as it involves celibacy, can be a good thing. Now, some of you in hearing that might say, no, wait a minute. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, it is not good that man should be alone. That's true. That's the norm. People get married. God said, I'm going to make you a helper suitable for you. But you know what? Just because you're single doesn't mean you're alone. Psalm 68, 6 says, God sets the solitary in families and you can have a church family that surrounds you and brings you health. You don't have to live a a lonely, alone life just because you're a single person. And because um, it's not good the man should be alone, I'm going to make a helper. And they got married, they came together. That's not the only good. Because here Paul says twice, it's good to be a single person. It's good, but immediately in verse 2, Paul says it's hard. It's good, but it's difficult. It's good, but when you're single, you face certain pressures from society, um, especially in Corinth, and I would add to that, especially in America, 
Because what I just described about loose morals in Corinth, pretty much Corinth is America in terms of that. So the pressure to live a single celibate life in America, in this new Corinth, is pretty daunting. And not everybody can do that. And Paul recognizes that. Paul says it's hard and there are temptations and most can't do that. Now, we read it, but Paul says, look, I'm gifted at this. I'm cut out for this. I'm called to this, but I realize not everybody is. Now, I want to touch on something before I move on. And not that it's really germane to the application here, but I think it's important because I get asked enough questions about this. And that is Paul's own singleness. There's a lot of debate over this. And some will say, well, you know, since Paul the Apostle was at one time a voting member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that ruling council in Jerusalem that oversaw Judaism, and we know that from Acts 26, because he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin rules required that if you're going to be a voting member, you have to be a Jewish male, you have to be married, and you have to have a child. And so the question is, where's Paul's wife and where's Paul's child? Because if he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin, those would be requirements. Now, others will answer that and say those were requirements, but they were not put in place till the late 1st century and 2nd century A.D., so that would post-date Paul. So let me answer that by just saying, I don't know. (laughs) You're saying, well, why did you spend all that time just to say, I don't know? Because... It could be that Paul was at one time married, but when he came to Christ, now just picture this, he's a Jewish rabbi who believes in Jesus as the Messiah. His Jewish wife, because of the pressure of Judaism at the time, may have said, I'm out of here, may have divorced him, may have left him, or she she may have died. We just don't know. What we do know is Paul at this point is single, And he is living a celibate lifestyle, and he's okay with that. And he just wants to know that, that, wants the Corinthian Christians to know that if you're single, it's okay. In fact, it is good. So, if you're married, start looking at single people a little differently. Not as some alien species that are living subnormal lives. Nor should you try to play Holy Spirit in finding them a mate. I know people who are just like, oh, you're not married. And they become like a heat-seeking missile, and they try to play Holy Ghost and find them a mate. Look, you can be a helper. Just don't try to be the helper. You know, God can, can, can manage without you. He might use you, but He might not. So that's if you're married. Now, if you're single, in the very least, I want you to see your position as okay, but I hope you go beyond that and see your single status as not just okay, but important. In fact, is valuable. And your single status may or may not be permanent. They say, now, why would it be so important? Why, why would Paul make a big deal out of saying, I want you to know it's good and it's okay? And he does so throughout the whole chapter, by the way. Because, and I want you to see this, there are many practical advantages to being a single person. Paul says so. Look down at verse 32. Look what he says in the next two verses, 32 and 33. He who is unmarried... That's single. 
cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, please don't misunderstand. He's not saying if you're unmarried, you're more spiritual. If you're married, you're worldly. When he says cares for the things of the world, he's making a valid point. When you're single, you have greater flexibility. You have greater freedom. You can move around and do whatever you want. You can follow the Lord's call to any country in the world, any activity at any time. You can go somewhere at the drop of a hat, and it's your hat. But when you're married, that brings a certain preoccupation with it. Concerns for your spouse, as it should. You're divided. You can serve the Lord, certainly, but it's not unfettered, unrestricted. It brings with it a certain responsibility. So he says, it's not only good, it's very valuable, and you can be wholeheartedly focused on the things of the Lord. Now, for just a moment, consider all the people in Scripture who God used. Well, not all of them. Just consider a few of them. Joseph, prime minister of Egypt, saved the world from a famine. And when he did so, he was single. He was not married at the time. He got married later. But his greatest feat of activity was while he was single. Think of Daniel the prophet in Babylon, third ruler of the kingdom, the one who gave advice to the ruler of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, as a single. Think of Amos the prophet, 8th century B.C., impacted and influenced Israel as a single person. Think of Elijah the prophet who stood single-handedly for the Lord in a corrupt nation as a single person. Think of John the Baptist who was single and Jesus said of him, he's the greatest man who's ever been born. And he was single. Paul the Apostle, first century missionary, church planter, Bible writer, single. Jesus our Savior, who accomplished salvation for the world as a single. In fact, one journalist, H.L. Mencken, wrote, It is impossible to believe that the same God who permitted his own son to die a bachelor regards celibacy as an actual sin. And we as the church look back and are thankful for people like Origen, one of the early church fathers. David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians. Robert Murray McShane, great influential author and churchman of England. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, who I've often quoted, survived the Nazi concentration camps. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor. Rachel Saint, who ministered to the Aka Indians for years after her husband died. Uh, John Stott, one of my heroes in the faith, all contributing to God's work as singles. So I think we can agree with Paul and say the single life can be what? Good. Can be good. Let's consider the second category. We'll go a little deeper with this now. The celibate life. You go, uh uh-oh. The celibate life requires a gift. Go, Go now to Matthew 19. You mark that in advance. Matthew chapter 19. Verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. A great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now stop there for a moment. You know why they asked this question? Because they actually believed it was permissible for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. You see, there was a passage, there still is, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24. It's the only passage that regulates divorce. And in that passage, Moses said, um, if a man finds a case of uncleanness in his wife, it's permissible for him to give her a writing of divorce and to send her away. So the debate was, what is the cause of uncleanness that a man finds in his wife? Well, it was divided. There were the conservative wing of the Jewish party under Rabbi Shammai who said uncleanness must mean sexual infidelity. If, if she goes out and commits adultery, that's the uncleanness that permits a man to divorce his wife. However, there was the more liberal wing under Rabbi Hallel who said, well, you can divorce your wife for anything you think is an uncleanness. Now, I'm kidding you not when I give you some of these examples. If she puts too much salt in his food, uncleanness. If she greets another man publicly, uncleanness. If she wears her bound hair unbound, that is loose and down, flowing down in public. If she spins around with too much joy in public. I mean, it went on and on. If she speaks bad about his parents. Yeah, somebody, that was, now that was interesting. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but that was good. That's the kind of interaction I like, by the way. I like that. Okay, so you got Rabbi Shammai saying narrow, only adultery. You have Rabbi Hillel saying wide, broad, any reason. Which do you think the Jewish men prefer? Which interpretation? This guy. I like the anything goes. In fact, in this category of liberal thinking, there was another rabbi who came later on named Rabbi Akiba who said if a man finds another woman who's more attractive than his wife, that's uncleanness. He can divorce his wife. So they come to Jesus and they say, is it okay for a man to leave his wife for just any reason, to divorce his wife for just any reason? So Jesus has an answer for that. He answered them, verse 4. And I always love his answers. He's basically saying, don't you guys ever read your Bible? He answered them and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's he quoting? Book of Genesis. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, they didn't like his answer. Because he took them back to what the Bible says and says, God holds a very sacred, narrow view. Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Now, here's what you need to understand. By the time of Jesus, all these rabbinical interpretations came down. And they believed now it's not just a permission slip to get a divorce. It's a commandment. I'm sorry, honey, I got to divorce you. Moses commanded me to if I find uncleanness and I find it. So it's a commandment. Why did Moses give us a command to, to do that? Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, 
permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Okay, so the disciples are listening to this conversation. And you're going to see they're shocked by it. Because the culture the disciples were raised in was this Jewish interpretation that made it permissible to divorce your wife for any reason. That was rampant in rabbinical teaching. In fact, listen to this little quote from the Talmudic writings. One rabbi said, A bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. So listen to the listen to the shock. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Can you, can you hear the shock in their voice? They hear what Jesus said in answering them, and they're thinking, if you're saying that it requires a lifelong commitment that can only be broken by death or an infidelity on her part, that's, that's radical. It's just better to be single. And notice Jesus' answer to them. He didn't go, well, what I really meant to say was. He says, well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Verse 11, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. What saying? What they just said. That it's better not to marry. All cannot accept this saying. But only to those to whom it has been, what's the word? Given. It's a gift. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Now you're thinking, what is all that about? Well, what Jesus mentions here in verse 12, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 12, is three categories of single celibacy that were common in ancient times. Notice them. He said, there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. What is he talking about? People born with a congenital deformity, either undeveloped or underdeveloped sexual capacity, and that physical deformity prevents them from having children. Second category he mentions, those who were made eunuchs by men. You know what that means? Men who were castrated. Now, I'm just guessing you probably haven't heard a a sermon with castration in it probably ever. So here goes. There's just no other, there's no delicate way to say that. But in ancient times, there were harems, there were kings that had lots of women around them, and the keepers of the harems, the requirement is they had to be castrated males because they were safe for obvious reasons. Because to perform that operation diminishes the sexual drive and any kind of capacity, so it it renders it safe. So in those days, in paganism, it was considered a way to appease your God by becoming one of these harem guards that that would please the God. That's how warped their thinking was. So you would have parents who would take their male children to be castrated for this purpose. That's antiquity, but that was going on. 
So he speaks about eunuchs who were born that way, congenital deformity, those who were made eunuchs, castrated. But look at the third category. Those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Now he's not speaking about going through a, a physical operation here. He's speaking here of a voluntary decision to be celibate. Those who choose celibacy. It's voluntary. They, they, they sign up for it. Now some of you are looking at me like, who in the world would ever do that? Well, Jesus answered that. Verse 11. Only to those to whom it has been given. End of verse 12. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So this is what it tells me. It tells me, number one, a life of single celibacy cannot be done without a gift. A capacity from God, an enabling from God. The word given or gift is didomi in Greek, and it means to bestow a gift to one's advantage. So it's a gift. Now, some of you are giving me the look like, oh, dear God, don't give me that gift. (laughs) Give me a lot of other gifts, but not that one. Send me to the deepest, darkest jungles of anywhere, but don't make me do that. Good news for you. You ain't got the gift, (laughs) if that's how you feel. So it requires a gift, number one. Second thing this tells me, if you have this gift, you know you have this gift. I know I don't have this gift. I know I've never had this gift. That's why I'm married. But if you have it, you know it. And you know it because either by nature, when you were born, or by choice. So the idea, and Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 7, he goes, look, I have this gift. And I encourage those who have it to accept it. Is that God gives certain people an ability to withstand the pressures of this unique lifestyle. And how do you tell if you have this gift? How do you tell if you're called besides wanting it? Or not wanting it. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you burn with passion. If you are unfulfilled without the sexual release from a marital partner. You're not called to this. And don't sweat over that. It's not wrong to get married. That's what Paul was speaking about in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, John Stott, I mentioned him a moment ago, a theologian that I've often read and loved. I had breakfast with him once in Amsterdam. He's now in heaven. He lived his whole life and did his whole ministry as a single man. Said this, the Bible does not indicate that either gift, meaning the gift of marriage or the gift of celibacy, the Bible does not indicate that either gift is always permanent. Just because someone is single now doesn't mean they'll always be. And just because someone is married now doesn't mean they will always be. And so Jesus in verse 12 says, He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. If you can accept singleness as the will of God for your life, which includes single celibacy, then accept it. If not, don't accept it. Don't sweat it. But you go by God's call. So... That's the single life. That's the celibate life. The single life can be good. The celibate life must be a gift. Now let's talk about the third category in closing. The sensible life. The sensible life. Now I'd like you to go back to 1 Corinthians 7 for a moment. We're going to close with two verses. 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 27. I, I, I wish we could go through all this and uncover it. It would take several weeks, especially for me to do this. But we'll just sort of see where Paul sums it up. 1 Corinthians 7, 27. Are you bound to a wife? I'm going to answer that for me and say yes. Happily so. Yeah, I've made that covenant. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? That is, are you single? Do not seek a wife. Verse 28. But if even if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. Now, first off, this is just good, solid, sensible wisdom. Cherish your life as a single person and take advantage of all that it affords. It's not wrong if you get married, Paul says, as long as it's to another believer. And it's not wrong to stay single, as long as when you're single, you don't try to act married. You stay celibate. Yes, God did say in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. That's the general principle. But sometimes it is good. Not to be alone, isolated, but to be as a single person. If God has called you to do that and given you the enabling to handle it. Now, did you notice what he says in verse 28? I think most people are going to just skip over, the, over this. He says, look, whether you're married or single, each has a gift from God. If you're loose, don't seek to be in a covenant. If you're in the covenant, don't seek to leave your spouse. But he says, look, I'm just trying to tell you that I want to spare you from the trouble you'll have in the flesh. The word trouble, philipsis, literally means pressure. You know what he's speaking about? It's the pressure that married people have that single people don't have. Right? Every, every married person should be going, yep, that's true. Once you, once you, once you get married, you, you experience a certain kind of pressure, like two completely opposite personalities blending in a single unit. Like, dude, what are you doing leaving your socks there? Or, honey, why do you make the toilet paper go under? It should go over. You know, all those little adjustments, right? That we go through as married couples. Conflicts that we have as married couples. Demands that come with marriage. Hardships that come with the relationship. Sacrifice that comes with the relationship. All of these are the pressures. Paul said, I want to spare you single people those kinds of pressures. It's not a sin if you get married. It's fine. God calls people to do it. In fact, most people to do it. But I would just like to spare you those pressures. Because you don't have those as a single person. You go, I know, but I got a lot of other pressures. Yes, you do. But you don't have those pressures. One gal said, there's only one thing harder than living alone, and that is to live with another person. (laughs) So here's the sensible life. Learn to be content. By the way, it has to be learned. Paul said, I've learned to be content. It didn't come naturally. I know many single people who are not single or not content being single. And I know married, many married people are not content being married. I have a guess that they were not content being single. They need to learn contentment in whatever God has called them to do. So the caution is this. You must be called by God if this is going to be long term. And you must be kept by God, whether it's short term or long term. 
Because just like it's wrong to be married and act single, it's wrong to be single and act married. What do I mean? Well, you know, you've all known people who are married, but they act single. It's like, dude, what are you doing picking up on that chick? What are you doing talking to her like that? Well, you know, just, no, just stop it. It's inappropriate. Act married. You're in a covenant relationship. Knock that off. But it's also wrong for single people to act like they're married. Like, well, we sleep together and we enjoy all the fringe benefits of marriage. I can do whatever I want. That's Corinth. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So you need to be called and you need to be kept. So once again, if you're married, don't discount single people. Don't overlook divorced or widowed. Include them in your social activities. Don't pressure them. Encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And if you're single, please don't waste your singleness. What do I mean by that? I mean, since you're single, why not throw yourself wholeheartedly into the plan of God for your life, the work of God for your life? There may never be another time in your life where you have the freedom to serve the Lord like you do now as a single person. And so use it. In fact, there's a side benefit to that. Just think about it. As you pour yourself into serving the Lord, you might just meet somebody else who's pouring him or herself into serving the Lord, and that might be your future husband or wife. By the way, that's where you want to meet them. Not at a bar, but serving the Lord together. That's... They have that common passion to serve Him. I want to close, and I am closing. You're going, thank you, Jesus. With something that I read that ministered to me as a single male before I was married. So you have to think, boy, that was written B.C. And I read this. It was by Ann Kimmel, and now she's Ann Kimmel Anderson. She got married. But as a single author, I think she captured a maturity. She said this, Jesus, if this is your will, then yes to being single. It is my deepest heart that I want to marry, to belong to a great man, to know that I am linked to his life and he to mine, following Christ and our dreams together. But you know what I need. So if I never marry, it's yes to you. Say yes to him today, single or married. So the single life can be good. The celibate life must be a gift. The sensible life should be your goal. Father, thank you for clear instruction in in this area. I think a lot of people think about your word as some ambiguous religious text that doesn't deal with real issues of life when in fact you speak about relationships and the home and singleness and celibacy and divorce and marriage. All those things you speak about sometimes in in very graphic detail, in great detail. And how thankful we are for those kind of principles that we can look at and that can become our blueprint. And Lord, we have many single people in this fellowship and how thankful we are for them and their giftedness and their calling and their ability. And thank you, Lord, for those that you have joined together and brought together. And Father, we we pray for those who have lost a spouse, that you'd comfort them, but use them and show them what the next step is. So Lord, we just embrace all those that you have brought to us for your glory in Jesus' name.
Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. How will you put the truths that you learned into action in your life? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.